If you'd like to turn your Bibles to Galatians chapter 2, we're going to be looking at verses 1 to 5. A number of years these, these words were spoken, free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty, we're free at last. You know when that was spoken? Martin Luther King Jr., 1963, on the march in Washington for the Civil Rights. One commentator said this, Doctor's wor- Dr. King's words conveyed something besides freedom's joy. They also hinted at its long, hard struggle. They were spoken a full century after liberty was first proclaimed for African Americans. Free at last. At last, after centuries of bondage and enslavement. At last, after another long century of prejudice and injustice. Free at last. Our experience with slavery in America teaches us that proclaiming emancipation and possessing liberty are two very different things. You can proclaim something but not possess it. Freedom is not easily gained. And once gained, it is very easily lost. Do you realize that? We can be free, but then lose it. And just because we proclaim it doesn't mean that we're living within that freedom. And if we we take that physical truth, that cultural truth, we can also see that in a spiritual realm. And that's what Galatians chapter 2 is all about. Free at last. Free at last. Thank the Lord Jesus Christ that we are free at last. But it's not about bondage to a physical taskmaster. It's about bondage to the law. We're free at last. And yet I believe that many Christians don't live in that freedom. And we find Paul in chapter 2 being dogged, as it were, by some individuals. And basically what was happening was they were trying to disrupt his teaching. So he would go into a church... He would go into a region. He would speak, speak of Christ and the freedom that you have in Christ. And these individuals were the enemies of the gospel. And they were trying to disrupt what Paul was teaching. In fact, one commentator said this, the, the bane or the curse of Paul's life and ministry was the insidious activity of false teachers. We don't have a lot of false teachers around here. They've kind of come and gone, but the reality is, can you imagine going to a church for a few months and going to a different church, knowing that the first church, someone's going to try to disrupt your teaching? Very, very frustrating. He goes on, wherever he went, they dogged his footsteps. No sooner had he planted the gospel in some locality than a false teacher began to trouble the church by perverting it. Further, as we have seen, in order to discredit Paul's message, they also challenged his authority. Because if you want to destroy the message, destroy the messenger. Paul was an apostle sent by Jesus Christ. He was uniquely called and commissioned and authorized and inspired to teach in Christ's name. Yet they sought to discredit the messenger and therefore the message. And that's really what chapter 1 and 2 of Galatians is all about. Paul is seeking to establish his, his message by saying, Listen, I am the messenger of Jesus Christ and and what they are trying to preach to you is a false gospel. Like if, if you just go back a chapter in chapter 1, verse 9, it says, and, let, and he said before them, so now I say again, if anyone preaches another gospel, and he, he said that a number of times, another gospel, what? Let him be damned. Let him be accursed. Let the wrath of God be on that person because they're preaching a different gospel, something that damns you. Let them be damned. 
So the whole point of chapters 1 and 2 is to establish that he is a messenger from God and the message that he preaches is the message from God. In fact, since you're in chapter 1 already, verse 11, chapter 111, this is really like the, the theme of chap, the rest of chapters 1 and 2 is, is found in verse 11 and 12. Chapter 111. But I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. In other words, I, I neither received it from man nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. I didn't, I didn't get my message from another man. And just, just to kind of review, because I know I've been gone for a couple of weeks, from verse 13 on, he's proving that to the rest of this chapter, chapter 1. He's proving that his message was not from man. Let me look at verse 13. He says, listen, before I was saved, before uh, you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, what was he? He was a persecutor. I mean, he actually wanted Christians murdered. I mean, certainly that's not somebody that learned it from man. I mean, I was going against Christianity. In fact, I, I hated Christians. I wanted to destroy the church. I even hated its master, which was Christ. And then if you want to know about my, my learning, verse 14, I was advancing in Judaism. I wasn't going towards Christianity. That's his pre-conversion. I mean, everything about Paul was pointing away from Christianity. I hated Christians. I was trying to destroy Christians. And even my teaching had nothing to do with Christianity. Do you see why he's telling them all that? Because he wants to establish, listen, the message I preach is not because I learned it from some man. And by the way, chapters 1 and 2 have huge implications to us being that Paul wrote 13 books of the New Testament. This is huge for us. Because if he had learned it from, let's say, the Apostle Peter... Well, then a, a person come along and just say, well, yeah, I mean, you know, some men walked with Christ and they passed it on to Paul and that's why we have the New Testament, but who knows if it's true or not. Paul wanted to make a real clear case. Listen, what I have is from God because I didn't learn it from man. Don't you love verse 15, that first word, but? But. We all have, if you're saved, you have a but in your life. But God. I like chapter Ephesians 2, 4. But God. You were going in one direction, but God. But God, when it, ple when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through His grace. That's His conversion. That was on the Damascus Road. That's Acts chapter 9. What? To reveal His Son to me that I might preach the, among the Gentiles. I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood. In other words, I didn't get the message from a man. And you might ask, well, why did God save Paul? God saved Paul so that Christ could be revealed through him. Why did, by the way, why did God save you so that Christ could be revealed in you? That's really why. It's not just to keep you from hell, although that's a, that's a subconsequence. The reason God saves people is so that you could, you could proclaim his son. You could glorify his son. And you could serve his son. Because it says not only that, that uh, about Jesus Christ, but that he might preach him among the Gentiles. By the way, among the Gentiles, this is, this is the man, the, the, the quintessential uh, Jew, now going to the Gentiles. Do you see how again, it, it, he didn't get his message from man? So Paul's post-conversion is verse 16. And then he just, you know, in rapid fire order says, well, let me, let me show you that I didn't confer with, with flesh and blood. 
Because verse 17 says, Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles. In other words, as soon as I got saved, I didn't run right up to the apostles. It says in Acts chapter 9 that he preached powerfully. Uh, then it says in verse uh, that he, he went to Arabia. So like if you're in Jerusalem, he, he goes off to the east into Arabia. After three years, he comes back. By the way, you might ask, well, what was he doing in Arabia? I believe he was contemplating all these truths, but I also believe that Jesus Christ personally was his professor. I believe Jesus Christ was teaching Paul and showing, him, showing himself throughout the Old Testament. And then three years after his conversion, with his theology fully developed, he visited Jerusalem again for the first time. You see this in Acts chapter 9. Uh, if you're in Galatians 1.18, it says, After three years I went up to Jerusalem. Just for a quick trip, 15 days, saw Peter, all James 2. Didn't change my theology at all because I was only there for a short, short time, but I got to know the, the brethren, which makes sense, right? But again, I didn't, I didn't go up to Jerusalem for five years to find out from Peter all the truth because I did not confer with flesh and blood. I did not get my message from man. And then after that, he apparently went up to Tarsus. In fact, we know that from Acts 11, verse 25. So he, he started ministering. I mean, he, he, it's amazing. He gets saved, uh, the scales come off his eyes, and he begins to preach. But I didn't get it from a man. What we also find, let me fill in a couple pieces since the last message, that then as he's up in Tarsus, there's a revival, not a revival, there's an evangelism uh, explosion and uh, Barnabas goes and gets him and brings him from Tarsus down to Antioch to help in the ministry. We're going to see that in a moment. And then after that, Paul actually, with Barnabas, visits Jerusalem a second time to give a love offering because they were in a famine. There was hardship. By the way, who would have caused much of the hardship in Jerusalem? It would have been Paul. Saul, right? Saul, trying to destroy the church. And I think in his heart there was a special place for the Jerusalem Christians because he knew how much suffering he had done to them. So he goes back a second time to Jerusalem, gives a love offering with Barnabas. You find this in Acts chapter 11. And then he goes off on his first missionary journey. This is what I want you to remember about Galatians 1. He is answering the question, did I get my message from man? And categorically, no. I did not get my message from man. But now in chapter 2, the question is this. Well, if you didn't get your message from a man, question, is your message different than the apostles? And that's a good question to ask, right? Because if, if you didn't get it from a man, are you preaching a different gospel than the other apostles? And that's what brings us up to chapter 2. So chapter 1 is, I didn't get it from a man. Chapter 2 is, but my message is the same as the apostles. Chapter 1, again, or verse 1. Then after 14 years, I went again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and also took Titus with me. Okay, I'm independent from the apostles, but my message is identical to the apostles. I went up to Jerusalem. And you might ask, well, which, which, which visit is it? I mean, all right, so he went for 15 days, saw only Peter and James. It's not that one. Some say, well, this visit is referring to when he went up to give a love offering to the saints in Jerusalem. I don't believe it is. I think this one is his third visit, which is what you find in Acts 15, the Jerusalem Council. 
And I say that, and I, I thought, in fact, I've gone back and forth on this. In fact, uh, two days ago, I was going to present it like this was his second trip. But as I thought about it more, I think it's his third trip. I think, it, I think he's referring to, in, in, in uh, Galatians 2.1, his third trip to Jerusalem, which is the Jerusalem Council, is where they decided on uh, how do you deal with the Gentiles. And, and, I, and I believe it's that way because um, when he gave the offering to the Jerusalem Christians, Herod Antipas, Antip, Antipas was uh, king. And he got out of being a king in 44 A.D. Now think about this, 44 A.D. If it's 44, go back. 44 gets, and, and Paul says, after 14 years. Well, 44 minus 14 is what? A.D. what? 30. That almost puts Paul at getting saved before Christ even died. I, I, the, 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 the years don't add up. So again, I... I know it's a minor point. Most of you are saying, whatever, you know, get onto the text. But the point is, is this. I think he, he is referring to the third uh, trip to Jerusalem, not the second, the third. And he says, I go up to Jerusalem. In fact, I left, I left the three trips in your uh, outline there, if you have it. Um, again, oh, and the, by the way, the fourth trip is when he gets uh, arrested and then finally sent off to Rome. So I think it's his third trip. Important only in the fact that he meets the apostles. If you want to read about it, Acts 15 is where, maybe some other time. And he mentions two people, which is very interesting. I went up again to Jerusalem, again to Jerusalem, third time to Jerusalem, with Barnabas and Titus. Don't you love those guys? Let me give you a little bit about Barnabas. He was a circumcised Jew. By the way, Titus was an uncircumcised Gentile. There's a contrast there. And it plays into the argument. Well, who was Barnabas? Well, his son literally means, I mean, excuse me, his name means son of rest. Son of rest. That's literally what Barnabas means. Barna, son, rest. Or literally, Naboth means prophecy. Son of prophecy. Son of rest. Now, now think about that. Why would he, because actually Acts 4 says this. Acts 4, verse 36 says, And Joseph, this is Barnabas' birth name, Joseph, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having having land, sold it, brought the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet. So the scripture says that the apostles, when they looked at Barnabas, this is the point, when they looked at Barnabas, they said, well, yeah, your name is Joseph, but you know, we're going to call you Barnabas. Because you're, a, you're such an encourager, son of encouragement. But then you might say, well, wait a second, but Barnabas doesn't mean son of encourager. It means son of prophecy or son of rest. What, what do you, what's the connection point? I think it's this. Barnabas was a man who spoke and lived the word of God. That's what prophecy is. He, and by the way, where do you get rest? Where do you get rest? Spiritual perfect peace. Where do you get that? You get it through the what? Scripture. You get it through the spoken word. And and I think with all the connections is this. Here's a man who literally lived up to the name that he was the son of prophecy. In other words, he lived and he spoke the truth and he lived it. And you know what? When you speak and live the truth, you know what you are to people around you? You're an encourager. 
That's, that's a true encourager. See, he, he didn't just have the name. I think he lived the truth. He literally lived his truth. He was a son of prophecy. He spoke it. He lived it. And therefore, he was what the apostles said. Man, you're, you're a son of encouragement. You're a man of encouragement. Always encouraging. And you see this in a number of ways. If you, uh, since you're in Galatians, why don't you uh, go to Acts 4, what I just read. You see with uh, Barnabas that he was very generous. Acts chapter 4, verse 37. He had a piece of land. It says he sold it. What are you going to do with it? Well, I'm going to sell it and give 10%. Uh, I'm going to sell it and give 20%. I'm going to sell it and not give anything, but I'm going to say that I gave it. You know, that's like the guys in Acts 5. Actually, man and woman. But look what he does. Having, lay, uh, having land, sold it and brought the money, in other words, the amount, total amount, and laid it at the apostles' feet. He was very, very generous. And that's why they called him the son of encouragement because they were suffering. And he lived out truth. See, it's one thing to know truth. I'm supposed to be a giver. It's another thing to do it. By the way, and that, that's true in your life too. We can know a lot of truth. I'm afraid many times we know a lot of truth, but we are not living it. And yet with Barnabas, he lived it. He actually gave it and, and laid it at the apostles' feet. In other words, it was up to them to spend it as they saw fit. Over in chapter 9, verse 26, just go to Acts 9, 26. Here's the case right after Paul gets saved. Understandably, the Jewish Christians are, are afraid. Look at verse 26. And when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples. This is Saul, this is Paul. But they were afraid of him and did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. So not only was Barnabas generous, but again, he lived up to his name of encourager. He was like the bridge between the Apostle Paul and the Apostles and the people. They were scared, but he took the risk. You go over to chapter 11, verse 19. We see Barnabas again. Verse 19, now those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far. By the way, who caused that persecution? Paul. I mean, it's interesting how Luke wants to make sure we know that. But anyways, and by the way, persecution does this often. It, it, it sends the message out. And so the words getting out to Phoenicia, Cyprus, that's all going north from Jerusalem, preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. Okay, so it was going to the Jews. That's good, but there's a whole lot more people than just Jews. But some of them, verse 20, were men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, which are the Greeks, non-Jews, preaching the Lord Jesus Christ. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and great number believed and turned to the Lord. So now we have both Jews and Gentiles getting saved. Now that's, that's concerning to the apostles. Look at verse 22. Then the news of these came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out whom? Barnabas. To go as far as Antioch. That's all the way to the north. And when he came and had... By the way, why did, he, why did they send him out? Because not only was he generous and an encourager, but he was respected, he was trustworthy, and he was proven. In other words, if I'm going to send somebody, I'm going to send him, right? 
It's like this. We hear something is going on, you know, uh, four counties over, and we want to, and we say, you know what? We're going to send Nate. Because he's proven. He's respected. And when he comes back with a report, we can believe it. it does, we don't have to question it, right? So that's Barnabas. By the way, he goes, look at verse 23, and he came and he seen the grace of God. He was glad and he encouraged them. Same word. Actually, the one is a root. But the idea is he encouraged them all that with the purpose of heart they should continue with the Lord, for he was a good man. This is talking about Barnabas. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, controlled by God, on fire for God. That word encouraged means to strengthen, comfort, exhort, admonish, console. It's all those words. It doesn't just mean happy thoughts. It means that Barnabas is willing, and at times I'm sure he had to strengthen through confrontation, but he was willing to do it. He was willing to do whatever it took to help those Christians grow. In fact, so much so that he stayed. Then Barnabas departed, excuse me, uh, and a great many people were added to the Lord. Then Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him back to Antioch. So it was that for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people, and the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Because you know what? He saw the people. How many were getting saved? I can't do it all myself. So he went on and got his friend Saul, Paul. Brings them back. We're going to work together. We're a team here. I mean, you just see so much of what Barnabas was, right? And Barnabas was to these men... He was also to Paul. He was also an encourager and an exhorter to Paul. So we see him as trustworthy and proven. And again, a ministry, ministry-minded. He, he, he stayed. He stayed to teach. He wanted to encourage. But also we see him finally as humble. Humble. Go to Acts 13. Paul and Barnabas are being sent out. Actually, 12.25. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their ministry. And look at verse 1 of chapter 13. Now in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers, Barnabas, and goes on. And then it says in verse chapter verse 2, second part, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul. And notice how it says Barnabas and Saul, Barnabas and Saul, Barnabas and Saul. If you go down through, like in verse uh, 7, you see it again. But it's an interesting thing that happens by the by uh, verse 43. Go 1343. Barnabas and Saul, Barnabas and Paul, Barnabas, verse 43. Now when the congregation had broken up, many of the Jews and devout proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas. In other words, there's a transfer. And I think Barnabas knew this. He looked at Paul and he was not threatened by Paul at all. Some people are. You know, it's, it's a funny thing in ministry. Sometimes there's so much competition in ministry, nothing happens. And yet when it came to Barnabas, he was Paul's greatest encourager. And as time came on, because I believe the, the sequence of names, Barnabas and Paul, showed that at one time Barnabas was the leader, Paul was the follower. But then there came a time, very shortly after that, that no, Paul became the leader and Barnabas the follower. In other words, the leader became the associate. And he was okay with that. Because in, in uh, Barnabas's mind, he was humble. He, he just wanted to see what? The ministry move forward. That was the issue. It wasn't about us. And by the way, ministry is never about us. Isn't it right? Isn't that true? 
Ministry is all about Jesus Christ and his program being pushed forward. That's all it's about. I I like what uh, Francis Chan said. I'm reading this book, Crazy Love. I think I mentioned it last. I took it on vacation. See, Gina, I did read something. All right. Gina quizzes me when I come back. You know, like, what did you read? And then Frank asked me, what did you learn? And I'm glad you do, because you keep me, yeah, I should be learning. If I said this, nothing, then two weeks wasted, right? But one of the things I learned, uh, Francis Chan mentioned this. You know, he said, 50 years from now, people are going to forget you. Just, Just accept that fact. Give it 50 years and you'll be all but forgotten. Now there'll be a picture and that was grandma or that was grandpa. But the reality is 50, 60 years. I mean, after my kids die and my grandchildren who may remember me, then beyond that, it's just a memory and a picture. And if we get that through our head, we are going to die unless the Lord comes back. But what I'm doing here is eternally worthwhile because it's pushing the kingdom forward for Christ. He'll remember me. He'll remember you. And I think that was, uh, that was Barnabas's attitude. He was humble. He had nothing of jealousy in his, his body, I don't think. In fact, Spurgeon once wrote this, it takes more grace than I can tell to play the second fiddle well. It's hard to play second fiddle. Not for Barnabas, not for a humble man. Then we come to another man. If you want to go back to Galatians chapter 2. Not only Barnabas, but Titus. Barnabas, a circumcised Jew. Titus, an uncircumcised Gentile. And you might ask immediately, well, why did Paul take Titus to Jerusalem? I mean, Jerusalem, the the focal point of Judaism, the heart of of, uh, the Judaizers. I mean, there was going to be some sparks flying when you take an uncircumcised Gentile into the holy city. I mean, did he do it just because he wanted strife? No. Paul did it to establish truth. I think he purposely did it. He was going to bring this uncircumcised Gentile into the holy city to prove that once you're in Christ, you don't need the law. Again, a great contrast is uncircumcised Gentile, but who had accepted Christ, probably from Antioch, that's probably where Titus is from, Again, a product of the Gentile missions that Paul and Barnabas were engaged in. Some even think this, that Titus was Luke's brother. I found that interesting. And the idea is this, that that's why you never see uh, Titus mentioned in Acts, because Luke's not going to bring up kindred. But it might be that he was the connect- I mean, there was a connection point that way. But we do know this of, of Titus because he's mentioned many, many times throughout, especially 2 Corinthians, that he was a confidant of Paul. He was his personal representative. And when, he, when Paul had an issue with the Corinthian church, he sent Titus. So he's a very mature man. So we have a circumcised Jew, Barnabas. We have an uncircumcised Gentile, Titus. They're going up to the holy city and they're going to get the message straight. Let's make sure everybody understands what the true message is. That brings us to third point, Paul's message to the apostles. And I went up by revelation. By revelation. In other words, God apparently actually specifically said, you need to go up to them uh, and communicated to them that gospel which I preach among the Gentiles. Again, questions always at hand. Are you preaching something to the Gentiles differently than to the Jews? 
but privately to those who are of reputation. That's referring to Peter, James, and John. By the way, James is the Lord's brother, not James and John the brothers. James is the Lord's brother. Lest by any means I had run in vain, or I might run, or had run in vain. Verse 3, yet not even Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. So he says, listen, we went up. I went up because I didn't want to run in vain. And when we got there and we looked at the truth and I gave the message, even Titus was not compelled to be circumcised. Now you might say, well, what's the big thing about circumcision anyways? Well, circumcision... And you see this uh, starting in Genesis uh, chapter 17. Was the sign of the covenant. It was given to Abraham. Abraham had to be circumcised so that he would, he would be identified as the covenant. That God had a covenant between him. I mean God and Abraham. It was a sign of the Jews. It, it marked. It was a mark of Jewish identity. See circumcision was huge. It didn't have to do with health reasons. It had to do with the sign. If you were the heathens weren't circumcised, but if you were a Jew, you had to be circumcised. Actually, if you didn't weren't circumcised, you were, you were no longer considered a Jew. It was the catch this. It was the symbol of salvation. Again, the old covenant for a Gentile to become a Jew, a proselyte, uh, to proselytize into Judaism, they had to be they had to have circumcision. The man had to be circumcised. And that was the sign. That was the sign that they were under the old covenant, that they were part of the Jewish nation. I mean, it's huge because you might say, well, yeah, well, most of us are, you know, men are circumcised. No, no, no. It, hadn't, it didn't have to do with health. It had to do with that you were under Judaism, that you were under the law, that you were seeking to fulfill what God had told Abraham. But here he brings this uncircumcised Gentile up to the holy city, and we're not going to be circumcised. It doesn't have to do with Judaism. And notice it, it says, look at his attitude. It says that I communicated to them that gospel. That word communicated means to set up for consideration. And I think he's using this word because he's saying, listen, I know that it, it was a huge step that we took when I took Titus up. But I, I set it up for their consideration. I wanted them to think through it. In other words, Paul did not come in with guns blazing. You don't have to scream and yell when it comes to truth. You just lay it out because truth itself will defend itself, right? In fact, we find that he did it privately. That was his method. But privately to those who were of reputation. The reputation are the apostles, the leaders, the elders, those of especially the apostles. But he did it privately. Now in Acts 15, and we'll look at that probably next week, we find that it's a public council though. But I believe what happened is sequentially this. He first of all met with the men privately and then publicly proclaimed their their conclusions. In fact, go to Acts 15 just for a second because you can see you can see the Judaizers, the Judaizers the false teachers. You can see their slogan in verse 2. Acts 15 verse 2. No, verse 1, excuse me. Verse 1. This is their slogan and certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, quote, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. You see, that's their, that's their, that's their slogan. You, you're not circumcised, you can't be saved. You can go back to Galatians 2. So Paul went up to Jerusalem to defend against that. Wait a second here. It's not Christ plus circumcision, it's Christ alone. 
So he did it privately. One commentator says, It was not, we may be sure, that he had any personal doubts or misgivings about his gospel and needed the reassurance of the other Jerusalem apostles, for he had been preaching it for 14 plus years, but rather lest his ministry past and present should be rendered fruitless by the Judaizers. It was to overcome their influence, not the strength of his own conviction, that he laid his gospel before the Jerusalem apostles. He didn't go up to them to say, guys, I want to get together and have a a consensus because I want to make sure I'm teaching the right thing. He was going up to make sure that they were on the right page. Do you get the drift? Do you see the difference? He's going up to not to make sure he's right. He's going up to make sure they're right. Because he, he mentions this, he says, lest by any means I might run or had run in vain. And, and he, again, he's not saying, I, I don't believe this at all, that he's saying, well, because I might have been preaching the wrong thing. But this is what could have happened if there had been a division at the Jerusalem council. And Paul said, no, Christ alone. And they said, no, Christ plus uh, circumcision. Now the church would be in two veins. And all the work that he had done among churches would be constantly confronted by this other thinking. He wants to make sure there's unity. There should always be unity with the truth, right? So he said, listen, I didn't, I didn't go up there because I, I didn't want to run in vain. I didn't want to start planting churches and have people from Jerusalem say, well, well, maybe it's not just Christ alone. Maybe it's Christ plus circumcision like the Judaizers are saying. The issue was not whether he was preaching the true gospel, but again, whether they were. And if there's going to be division, let it be over the truth. By the way, does truth unite... Does truth unite? Absolutely. How about this? Does truth divide? Absolutely. And so there's going to be a division, Judaizers, with the Judaizers. So that was his concern, lest by any means I might run or had run in vain. And then he gives a test case, verse 3, test case. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. You know, when it was all said and done, even this new convert decided, no, it's, it, I'm not going to... Remember, he says Titus because if, it, if you needed circumcision to be saved, Titus was saying no, which means he wasn't going to be saved. This was a huge thing. It wasn't just about words here. If you needed circumcision, Titus decided not to, which meant if it's true, he was damned. But after the information was in, the truth was in, even Titus, the new convert, decided, no, it was Christ alone. You only need Christ. You don't need, you don't need any other works. Now again, the Judaizers were pushing for circumcision. But the Gentiles, through Titus as an example, were accepted as real and true Christians just as he was. And I say free at last, praise God, that we are complete in Christ. We don't need circumcision. We don't need baptism. We don't need church membership. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone. So you might ask, well, what does it take to be a first-rate Christian? What does it take to be a first-rate Christian? Does it take anything else but Christ? Maybe, it's, maybe you get saved by Christ, but what does it take to be a first-rate Christian? Or to say it a different way, is there any second-rate Christians in God's family? The answer is that there is no second-rate Christian. In fact, Phil Bryken said this, How could there be 
a second-rate Christian in God's family. Every Christian is saved exactly the same way, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Therefore, there can be no distinction in the church. The church cannot exclude people from salvation on the basis of race, gender, class, age, or anything. Now, we know that, right? In fact, Paul's going to say that in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. There's neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female. We're all one in Christ. But, you know, to them back then, that was a huge... But let's go on a little bit farther. The church cannot even discriminate on the basis of relative righteousness. Now, this is where we get a little sticky sometimes. Christians have a way of ranking sins. If someone is struggling with pride and loss, well, that's okay. I mean, who isn't? But someone is battling with depression or whose marriage is falling apart or who is tempted to commit homosexual sin or who is addicted to drugs had better keep it quiet. Otherwise, people will know that he or she does not really belong to the church or that they are second-rate Christians. This seems to be the way that some Christians think. But it is not the way God thinks. Christians have different gifts, of course. We have different backgrounds. We have different cultures in some cases. We have different ministries and callings. So there is order in the church. We have different trials and temptations, but there is no difference in our standing before God. Do you believe that? And if there's no difference in our standing before God, there should be no difference in our standing with one another. Well, of course you don't need to be circumcised to be saved. We all know that. But sometimes it gets a little foggy as we go along. And, well, maybe I'm more of a... Maybe I'm better. Maybe I'm like a first-rate Christian and you're only a second or third because where I'm at versus where you're at. No, no. Christ alone. If you're saved, it means you've been forgiven by Christ and you are a part of His family and you have the riches of Christ. Now, you may be a disobedient son and God may be chastening you, but as far as you're standing before God, we're all, all the same. Now, these guys, just let me take the last few minutes. These guys didn't believe that. Look at verse 4. And this occurred because false brethren, pseudo-Christians... By the way, false. They're called false brethren because they proclaim themselves to be Christian brethren, but they were false. They're not true. I don't believe these are weak Christians. I believe these are unbelievers. And this is why I say that. They seek, they, they, these false brethren secretly brought in, who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty. By the way, when do you use those words? Stealth? Excuse me. Secretly, stealth, spy. Who do you use those of? Enemies. Enemies. If you don't come in, if you sneak in, that's because you're an enemy. I think that's why Paul used that. They tried to infiltrate the theology of the church. They came in by stealth. Look at that they might bring us into bondage. What do you mean, into bondage? That was their goal. Their goal was slavery. Slavery to what? Slavery to the law. That's what they came in for. Because again, remember their slogan, Acts 15.1, we just looked at that a few minutes. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. They wanted to bring us back into slavery to the, the law, to the circumcision, to the rights, to being a Sabbath keeper. They would look at you as all damned. You're at meeting on Sunday. You should be on Saturday. That's, that's what the law said. 
See, their objective was to reduce Christians to abject spiritual slavery, complete enslavement by the rights, the rules, and the regulations of the law. Very hideous. That's why Paul just takes so much time in in two different chapters to go through this. These were legalists. These were legalists. No, you can't be saved by Christ alone. You need all these other things. Let's say it this way. If someone comes along and tells you that you need to keep the sacraments to be saved, that is another gospel. If someone tells you you have to keep five pillars to be saved, that is another gospel. If someone comes in and says, well, you have to go to church, that's another gospel. Christ and Christ alone. That's legal. By the way, legalism, let me define two terms. Legalism is thinking you're getting saved by what you do. Sometimes I hear this, well, you're a legalist. Uh, I believe that you should be here on church on Sunday. Well, you're a legalist. That is a poor use of theological term. That's not a legalist. That, has ha- that is having a standard. Do you see the difference between legalism and a standard? Let me. Legalism says you're doing something to get saved. They said you needed to be circumcised. There's other people that say you need to keep the sacraments. To keep or get saved or keep saved, you need to have sacraments. That's legalism. That is damning. That's another gospel, Galatians 1, uh, 9. But in the Christian church, there should be standards. Let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. The standard is there should be different things that we seek to obey God in, right? In other words, if you're watching pornography, or if you're a glutton, or if you're a gossip, this is not a liberty issue. This is a sin issue. Because those are direct things that God has said are wrong. In other words, I'm not being a legalist by saying that. Or if, if I say this, you need, to be, you need to be in fellowship during the week. You need to be here on Sunday. That's not a legalist. That's a standard. And that's very good. We have to define the difference between legalism, something that gets me saved, and a standard which means living, living obediently by God's moral law. Let's be obedient. Let's be obedient. In fact, over in Galatians chapter 5, one last verse and then we'll be done. 5 and then we'll come back and we're done. Uh, chapter 5, verse 2, this is how strong Paul ends... You know, we'll be here in a few months. Uh, Galatians chapter 5, verse 2. Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. And I testify again to every man who has become circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. Or to say it a different way, it is impossible for a legalist to be saved. Let's say it that way. It is impossible for an illegalist to be saved. And I know a lot of people will say, well, no, I mean, sure, they get their theology a little bit wrong, but certainly they're Christians. That's not what Paul's saying. Paul's saying, listen, if you're depending on anything to get you saved beyond Christ alone, it's the false gospel. It's like drinking spiritual antifreeze. Christ will profit you nothing. We have to hold to grace. We can't earn salvation because in any way, if we try to earn salvation, it negates grace. 
And that's why in the verse 5 he says this, To whom we do not yield submission even for an hour that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. I love that last part. What he's saying is, you know, I held strong to the gospel, but it wasn't just for my sake. I held strong for your sake too. And I think of parents and I think of teachers, teachers at this church, and I think of this. We need to hold strong to truth and never bend even for an hour. So let me give you the illustration. You're with your family. And your family, your uncle is telling you about his religious experience. And he's telling you about all the great things he's doing. And the implication is because he's doing all these things good, he's going to heaven. And you're biting your tongue because you know it's Christ alone. But rather than cause a commotion, rather than get somebody upset with you, you just keep your mouth shut. And you know what you just did? Exactly the opposite of what Paul, because he never yielded even for an hour, and what you just did is yielded for a moment. I'm not going to stand up for the truth because it's not worth the argument. One guy said this, many weak-kneed jellyfish preachers would have yielded and then justified themselves at this moment. Weak-kneed jellyfish preachers would have yielded and then said afterwards, well, I was doing it out of love. I was doing it to be practical. I just wanted to keep the unity. Nope. Paul was a champion for truth. I did not yield submission even for an hour. Because what happens, what? Teaches. All it would have taken was one thing. Titus, get circumcised. Don't, don't mess And that would have corrupted the gospel because what was under consideration was whether you needed it for salvation. And Paul stood strong, nope. And and Titus, whose salvation was on the line, said, nope. It is Christ and Christ alone. Do you believe that? Are you resting in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone? If you're not, you may be here and you say, well, I'm not even sure what you're all talking about. The the gospel is this, that, that we are all sinners. By the way, you might be here saved and you say, oh, I'm going to turn this out because he's going to talk about the gospel. No, turn it in because you know what? The gospel solves our problems. But you may be here and you say, well, I don't understand what you mean. Well, the the Bible says that all have sinned, which means all of us are under the condemnation of God. But God the Father sent the Son to be our sacrifice and he died for our sins and our sins were placed on him, nailed to the cross like we learned in ABF today. And because the sins were nailed there, now we can receive Christ and have full and complete forgiveness. Not Christ plus anything, just Christ. And if you've never received Christ, Jesus Christ is your Savior and Lord. You can do that right where you're at. Lord, I thought it was Christ plus. No, no. I now understand it's only you. It's what you did on the, on the cross. And I'm trusting you completely for my salvation. And if you've done that... Maybe you've done that. Maybe you are a Christian. I want you to savor that, right? I want you to meditate on that. That you are completely secure in Jesus Christ. And there's no second-rate Christians. And you may be struggling and struggling. You're a Christian. You're struggling about this. And And maybe you're not even willing to say anything because if I let that one out, boy, they're going to really... And maybe there's freedom right now to know, you know what, in Christ, in Christ, you are complete. And you may struggle... 
And God loves you. Now, if you take it nonchalantly, He may chasten you because God chastens His sons and daughters. But know this, that you are completely secure in Jesus Christ if you've received Him as your Lord and Savior. And with that, I ask that you would stand up. And as you sing, I want you to remember that truth, that you are completely secure in Jesus Christ. You're not earning your way to heaven by being a loud singer. I trust, or even a good singer, thank the Lord for my part. But what you're doing is you're praising the Lord because you're saying, you know what, I couldn't have done anything for my salvation. You did it all. Thank you for bringing me to yourself. Father, again, we thank you for the wonderful truth of knowing that it's only through Christ that we can be saved, that we are totally secure in Him, that there are no second-rate Christians, because it's not what we've done, but what You've already done for us. Lord, I pray that if there is anyone here that still does not understand how to receive You, I pray that they would seek one of us out, perhaps myself. Father, I pray as believers, just solidify this in our hearts. Lord, help us to serve You out of love and not fear. Lord, it is so wonderful to know that we are absolutely secure because now we have total freedom. We're free indeed to be able to serve You. And I pray now that we will open our mouths to proclaim truth. There's a lot of error out there. And as we come across it, help us not to allow it to stand for even a moment. Lord, I pray that You give us the boldness to proclaim truth so that you might be glorified and others might be helped. In Christ's name, amen.